0: The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Good morning, church. How you doing? Good, glad to be here. My name's Jared. If we haven't had the joy of meeting yet, I serve here as our discipleship and men's pastor. Mission Impossible 7 hit Theaters across the country this week. Did anybody have a chance to see it yet? Mission Impossible 7. Yeah, Tom Cruise is still making movies, y'all. Still making Mission Impossible movies. He's 62, going at it. Uh, Mission Impossible 8 comes out next year. Uh, Who knows? Maybe there's a 9 and 10. Maybe he's gonna go until he's 80. Who knows? I don't know. Tom Cruise has got it going on. I got to see the movie. It was good. Uh, We saw it Friday night to celebrate uh, my wife's birthday, but the first movie, Mission Impossible 1, was released when I was just a kid, 1996. I remember wanting to be a secret IMF agent like Ethan Hunt, which at one point ended up with me accidentally breaking a window uh, to complete my mission. Sorry, mom. In the first film, Ethan Hunt meets a surprising arms dealer. Her name is Max. During this conversation, Max poses two questions to, to Ethan that have replayed in my mind over the years. Here are the two questions. Who are you and what are you doing here? I wanted to show a clip, but in lieu of that, I think I'd just harness my inner Max accent because her delivery, her oratory emphasis in this moment is why it stood out to me. She said this, who are you and what are you doing here? (laughs) And it just struck me as a kid. I was like, what a question. It's such a potent, relevant question. It was then and it was now. As many theologians, philosophers, sociologists, and psychologists note, the identity question is the question for all time. New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass writes this, there's only one question, who are you? Everything else in life flows from the one question that is true whether you are a person of faith or not. The identity question is the question. In fact, every religion, every denial of religion, every philosophy or ideology seeks to tell people who they are and how they fit with the reality around them and how they should then live. You see, the question that Max posed to Ethan Hunt is the question that we ourselves and every human asks and every person must answer. Who are you and what are you doing here? Yet we live in a time where the identity question and the answer to identity is being radically redefined. In contrast to a few thousand years of human culture and our understanding of communal and personal identity, we in the secular West see our identities as self-created and self-defined. In her book, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, Tara Isabella Burton writes this, our cultural moment is one in which we are increasingly called to be self-creators. People who yearn not just to make ourselves a gift to the world, but to make ourselves, period. At the core of this collective project of self-creation lies one vital assumption, become who we really are where and how we were born, the names, expectations, and assumptions laid upon us by our parents, our communities, and our society at large, all these are at best incidental to who we really are, at worst, actively inimical to our personal development. It's only by looking inward, by curating our inner selves that we understand our fundamental purpose in life. And she concludes with this, we can no longer tell where reality ends and fantasy begins, answering this question, who are we? Who are we? In our search for the answer to the question, who am I? The ethos of secularism has forced us to create and achieve an answer on our own that will establish personal worth and social credibility. The promise of secularism is self-actualization, but the reality is self-deterioration. A cursory look at the status of mental health, depression and suicide rates, cancel culture and beyond begs the question, how does the self, defining the self, How's it really going? How's it really going? As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God. And as such, it has the defining and the final authority in our life for faith and for practice, for right belief, orthodoxy, and right living, orthopraxy. From beginning to end, the Bible is about identity and identity formation. In the Bible, God reveals his identity to us, that he is God, God of compassion and love, justice and mercy. He is holy. But in addition, in the Bible, God reveals our identity to us. And perhaps more deeply, he reveals our identity for us. In the truth and grace of God, our identity is not achieved or self-created. Our identity is received and then co-authored with God in relationship with him. Yes, the foundation of our Christian identity is that we are the much loved children of God created in the image of God, saved from sin, made new in Christ, made alive in Christ. The unchanging fundamental truth about your identity and my identity as a Christian is that we are the beloved of God. However, we often get decentered and we lose our bearings on our identity. We start to attach ourselves to lies of identity. John Orberg writes this, the soul without a center finds its identity in externals. When my soul is not centered in God, I define myself by my accomplishments or by my physical appearance or my title or my important friends. When I lose these, I lose my identity. This series is called Identity. And over the next four weeks, we'll look at four lies that the, the culture around us, the promise of secularism tries to wrap us in. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others think of me. I am my best or worst moment. And we're gonna replace those lies with the truth and grace that come only from Jesus. And we're gonna do this series by looking through the life and the writings of the apostle Paul. His story perhaps represents the most radical and influential identity shift in all of scripture, if not all of history. Today, we're gonna look at how Paul found his identity in what he had, how meeting Jesus changed his identity how he lived a life of gospel witness from that identity shift. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Philippians chapter three. We're gonna be in verses four to six to start. Philippians chapter three. And before we go to God's word, would you join me in a brief moment of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time together as your people. We thank you for the truth of our identity in Christ. I pray today that by your spirit, you would illuminate the word to us, We give our attention to it now, it is a light in the darkness, it is life to us. And so Lord, as an act of worship, we turn to your holy, inspired, authoritative word, because it speaks directly to our life. um, Lord, and we receive your gift of, of love, your gift of mercy and identity today, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, it was a Roman colony. It was a letter that Paul was writing of spiritual friendship. He really loved this church. There was partnership, mutual partnership in the gospel in the early movement of the church that the Philippians supported Paul financially in his missionary journeys and his church planning efforts. But this is also a letter not just of friendship, but of, of exhortation. Paul's writing them to exhort them to continue in the gospel to rejoice. This is a refrain that you hear over and over in Philippians. To rejoice in the, the opposition and the suffering that they were experiencing because this suffering was a marker of them being in Christ, of truly witnessing to the lordship of Jesus. Paul wrote to call them to rejoice in this participation, and he also wrote to call them to continue to follow in the cruciform or cross shaped way of Jesus. He encouraged them to live bold witnesses, as bold witnesses to the lordship of Jesus. During this time, though, uh, in, in Philippi, there were many devout Jews, messianic Jews, who were willing to accept Jesus as the Messiah. But they wanted to hold on to forms of Judaism. And so Gentiles, non-Jews coming into the faith, wanting to follow Jesus, they were saying, if you wanna be a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. You have to follow the Torah, you have to complete the law, and most notably, you have to get circumcised. Sorry, dudes. So they believed that the Gentiles had to become Jews before becoming Christians. And Paul's writing against this and saying, hey, this is not our foundation of salvation, righteousness, or belonging with God. We don't have to follow the Torah anymore because Christ has fulfilled the Torah, and now we follow Christ, we follow Christ. And so he's writing to the church in Philippi this word of exhortation. I wanna turn to Philippians three, four to six, because this is a moment of autobiographical writing. It's where we get a glimpse into how Paul thought of himself, his identity. Often when we read this verse in in church, we'll read it all the way through to where he kind of rejects or denies this former way of thinking about himself. I don't wanna do that yet. I wanna sit here and kind of reflect on how Paul saw himself and how his identity informed his actions, his decisions, and his behavior. So Philippians 3, 4 to 6 says this. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh or confidence in what they do to secure their belonging with God, their righteousness and salvation, Paul says this, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This is how Paul Saw himself. This was his self conception. This was his identity. He took identity in what he had. He had the right birthright. He took his identity in what he had. He had the right uh, um, following of the law. Paul's identity was in his ritual, it was in his ethnicity as a Hebrew, it was in his rank, it was in his tradition, his rule keeping his zeal, his obedience to the law, all these things that he had and he could point to and say, this is why I have secured belonging and righteousness to God. I'm keeping the Torah and I'm maintaining the purity of the people of God. Paul's identity was wrapped up in these things. And he's saying, if you have confidence in the flesh, I have more confidence based on these things that I have. I have. Paul's identity was in what he had. And as a Pharisee, This is actually a really good thing for him because he was was at a heart level committed to the restoration of Israel by glorifying God, to the keeping of Torah so that Israel would be restored, that God's glory would cover the earth, would fill the earth, that God would, would restore his people through his covenant that he promised. And so as a good Pharisee, Paul is focused on promoting the Torah and purifying the people of Israel, which means this, Gentiles don't get to come into the people of God. You don't belong here unless you become a Jew, unless you practice Torah, you can't be saved by Jesus. So Paul's refuting this heretical gospel. Paul is noting where he found his identity and what he had. But what you see is this, this Pharisee's mindset. My identity is in what I have. I need to promote the Torah and protect Israel from being defiled by Gentiles. You can't belong to Jesus because you're not following Torah. Contextually, Paul is saying, I have confidence in these things for my salvation, or I used to. And we'll see later how that changes. But principally, I'd like to expand that and just note that we do this all the time. We find our identity in the things that we have, what we have. I've got this degree, I have X amount of money, I have a lot of cool things, I have stuff our wealth, our finances, our education level, what I have, or maybe we find our identity in what we don't have. I don't have that education level. I don't have that money. I don't have that stuff. We do this all the time. We find our identity in what we have. Here's a litmus test to kind of locate. What's the thing that you perhaps are attached to for your identity and what you have? Finish this sentence. I'll give it to you to think about. If I didn't have blank, then I wouldn't be I didn't have this, then I wouldn't. I wouldn't be fill in the blank. Or maybe flip it. If I just had that, then I would be. We don't often think of this at a conscious level. We kind of carry it around. It's the ethos. It's the water that we swim in in secularism, that I am what I have. You see, I didn't consciously think that I am at an identity level, my car. But I can tell you that the car that I drive now messed with me for a bit. And here's why. When we moved back to Texas from Denver, Colorado, I had in mind to get a four-door black F-150. I wanted the truck, we're back in Texas, baby. You know what I ended up with? A four-door black Prius. <laughs> and by the way that you're laughing, you understand the difference in how I could self-identify in a Ford F-150 or a Toyota Prius. I love the Prius, it's helped with uh, gas, it's helped with you know the inflation rates, but uh, at a core level, I recognize you know what, my car doesn't define me. Oftentimes we don't think about this though at a conscious level. We carry it around. I am what I have. I am my wealth. I am my education. I am my stuff. And somehow my, my stuff, my education level, my wealth gives me personal worth and social credibility. So if I lose those things, I lose my worth and I lose my credibility. So, Paul was doing, in one sense, what he had to find his salvation, in another sense, what he had to find his credibility and worth. And we do it all the time. Paul's inward identity informed his outward action. Here's how his self conception informed what he did. He says this in Galatians 1, another letter that he wrote For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So his identity and his stuff, what he had before God and others, was expressed in persecuting the church, trying to destroy it, competing educationally against others, advancing in religious zeal and expressing that zeal with extreme passion for the traditions of his father's. Paul's identity informed his outward action. So that's Philippians three. We're kind of looking at how he thought of himself. I wanna shift now to the key moment in his life where his entire identity shifted. He became a new person in Christ and he thought of all of the things that I just referenced differently, differently. So let's turn to Acts chapter nine. We'll be there for the next few minutes. Acts nine verses one to six. In this passage, his name is not yet Paul, it's Saul. So I'll do my very best to, to say Saul. Meanwhile, Acts 9 verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, these were the early Christians, they weren't yet identified and called Christians, they were called followers of the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Who belonged to the way, whether men or women, so regardless of who they were, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. So Saul is breathing out murderous threats. He has in mind to go to the synagogues in Damascus. He has a place and he has a purpose. He has a mission that he's on. I'm going to go persecute these Gentiles trying to become part of the people of God. I'm going to go persecute them. I'm going to exclude them, whether they're men or women, they don't get to belong here, and I'm going to imprison them. This was Paul's mission, to harm, to exclude, and to imprison, and this mode of ministry was in his heart and mind because of how he saw himself. His identity informed his decisions, behaviors, and actions, just like you and me. How we think of ourselves, where our identity is rooted in, informs our actions, our decisions, and our behaviors. Oftentimes, if we root our identity in the stuff that we have, we take on a posture of control and identity management, and we end up harming others because you can't have my stuff, it's what defines me. Paul in this moment was seeking to harm, to exclude and to imprison, all in the name of the God of Israel. But here in Acts nine, Saul encounters Jesus. Saul encounters Jesus and everything changes. Let's read. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? A light from heaven. Now Saul, a Hebrew, immersed in the Hebrew scriptures, someone who kept the Torah, someone whose imagination was shaped by the scriptures, a light from heaven. I can't imagine how many things would trigger in his mind from this moment. Maybe like, the creation narrative, where God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be light into the darkness. Or when the prophet Ezekiel fell before the light of God, or Daniel in his dream fell before the very presence of God. Or where in Isaiah nine, the prophet says, there's going to be a light, a Messiah light, who comes and shines in the darkness and brings salvation. Or maybe Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Or maybe he's remembering at Mount Sinai all the way back in Exodus where the light and the thunder and God's presence on the mountain spoke to Moses and spoke to the people, this light from heaven. And then a voice, a voice that speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Anytime in the New Testament where there's two two times repeated Saul, Saul, or Martha, Martha, names that are repeated twice, it's to show the intensity and the compassion. Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Now, in this moment, spoiler alert, the voice is Jesus. He's talking to Saul, but Saul doesn't know it's Jesus yet. He's on the ground in holy reverence and all this light and this voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here's his response Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. This word Lord is Kyrios in Greek. At the very least, Paul knows that Lordship means authority and superiority. He's bound before a voice from a light. He says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. In this moment, Saul meets Jesus. And I don't know if Jesus paused in between, I am Jesus, but if he did, he might've given room for Saul to imagine all the more who he is encountering in this moment. In Exodus three, when God speaks to Moses, go to Pharaoh to release my people from slavery. Moses says, who am I? Who will I tell Pharaoh who you are? So tell him, I am who I am. And I wonder if Jesus said, I am. And Paul waits, Saul waits in holy fear. I am now encountering the God of the universe my creator and my maker, Yahweh himself, dot, dot, dot. I am Jesus. And everything begins to spin for Saul in this moment. Everything begins to reform and recapitulate around this person, Jesus. If Jesus is the voice from the light, if Jesus is God, everything changes about my understanding of my faith as a faithful Jew and as my identity. Everything changes for Paul. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Get up and go, he says, get up and go. Paul encounters, Saul encounters the truth of Jesus. I am Jesus, I am God. The God you thought you were honoring by persecuting Jesus, you're actually persecuting by dishonoring Jesus. I am Jesus, I am God. That is truth. And you'd expect Jesus to maybe come down hard on Saul. Hey man, I'm Jesus. I'm gonna shut this whole persecute my early church thing down. You're a dunzo, Saul. And he's not. The truth of Jesus is met with the grace of Jesus because this is what Jesus came to do. He came to give us the fullness of God's truth and God's grace. Where you might expect Jesus to stop Paul, Jesus actually in his love sends him, get up and go. I am Jesus, get up and go. Truth And grace, real encounter with the truth and the grace of Jesus totally transforms our identity. It can't not. Real encounter with the truth and the grace of Jesus totally changes your identity. And it did this for Saul. Tim Gombas Professor says this in his book, Power and Weakness. That encounter shattered and recreated everything about Paul, transforming his theology, reconfiguring his life, and radically reshaping his mode of ministry. He turned from a quest for power and prestige toward a new pursuit of conformity to the cross of Christ. This cruciform approach affected his self-understanding and consideration of his mission. It affected his identity and his purpose. My identity has changed because I have met Jesus. We see this in the way that Saul responds. Acts nine goes on in verse 19 and 22 says this, Saul now was with the disciples in Damascus for some time immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God, confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So Saul is going to the synagogues in Damascus. He's gonna persecute, he's gonna exclude, he's going to imprison. And then Saul encounters the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. His identity changes in this moment and now his mission changes. He goes to the synagogues in Damascus and instead of persecuting, instead of excluding And instead of imprisoning, Paul preaches grace and truth. He preaches Jesus. He includes the Gentiles that he was trying to exclude. He includes them as Gentiles because they're seeking to submit their lives and their identity to the lordship of Jesus. He preaches, he includes, and then he liberates. He's no longer seeking to to lock them up. He's seeking to set them out on mission. Everything changes for Saul, his identity and his mission The love of Jesus now defines Saul. So as we close, I wanna show you how Saul now, Paul, takes his identity and then reapplies it to that verse that we read in Philippians 3. Here's how in Galatians, he starts to internalize his new identity in Christ. He says this in perhaps his most famous statement in all the New Testament, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul remembers about this Acts 9 encounter with Jesus, this moment where he sovereignly intervened in his life. He said, you're persecuting me, the very God you wanna serve, Let's change the game, Paul. I'm saving you. I'm giving you a new identity and a new mission. And Paul now internalizing this identity says, I have been crucified. Well, who was actually on the cross? It was Jesus on the cross. But Paul is saying, my my identity is now in him, which means I have been crucified. Paul, defined by Paul, Paul finding his identity in his stuff and what he had to give him righteousness and, and a sense of belonging and salvation before God, Paul, who was trying to find identity in what he had to give him a sense of personal worth and social credibility, he's saying that Paul was crucified. None of those things define my relationship with God or define my worth and credibility with others. I have died. As I no longer live, Christ, Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in him. Christ is living his life in and through me. That's what it means to be a Christian. We If we're followers of Jesus, we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. The self-defining self, the self-creators that our culture and secularism says to be, we no longer have to be. We're not bound up in that dream. We're set free from the way of the world. And here's how Paul says it in Galatians 6. May I never boast except in the cross of Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Paul says this, I've been crucified, but not only that, the world has been crucified, but not only that, I have been crucified to the world. The old way of doing things is dead and gone. The new way, the new ministry, the new mode, and Christ is alive and well, because Jesus is the crucified, risen Lord, and that's my identity, it's in him. Not in what I have, not on what I have. Everything changes for him. The lie was I am what I have and that establishes my salvation, my worth and my credibility. The truth is this, you are not what you have. You are who has you. Your identity is not in your stuff, your education or your wealth. Your identity is in Christ crucified. That's why Paul would go on to say, I've resolved to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. This is where the Christian life begins, this is how the Christian life is lived. From gain to loss, everything's starting to change for Paul. So let's go back to Philippians 3. This is what he says. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul goes to this passage now and everything about his identity has changed. Everything that he found his identity in is dead and crucified. It is a loss, not a gain. It's in the way of the mission of Jesus now. I've been crucified with him. I no longer live, but he lives in me. This is the heart of discipleship, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I wanna be with Jesus now. I wanna know Jesus. I wanna become like Jesus. I wanna do what Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord did. I wanna live a life of humility and service and blessing for the good of others. This is Paul saying, I wanna be formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. From gain to loss, the love of Jesus changed Paul's life. So how do we, how do we take this, this truth and live it out? How do we preach the gospel to ourselves every day? I wanna take us back to that Acts 9 moment and remind you that, that Saul encountered the truth and the grace of Jesus. The truth that changed him was this. The love of Jesus defines him. And friends, the truth is this, the love of Jesus defines you. Fundamentally, foundationally, at the core, elementally, you are defined by Jesus and nothing else. Every other identity marker bows at the cross. Grace, the love of Jesus defines you and the love of Jesus in his grace sends you, sends you out. Where Paul thought his mission was done Jesus says, get up and go. Get up and go. And so I want to offer a prayer that we can pray together as we close the church. It's a simple one sentence prayer. Maybe you've never thought this way before. Maybe you've kind of gotten wrapped up in the lie that you are what you have. And now the truth that you are not what you have, but you are who has you, is really getting at your heart. The Spirit of God is moving. This prayer would be a response. If you would join me, the prayer will be on the screen we'll pray it together. It says this, God, thank you that we are not what we have. We are yours, we are loved, and we have everything we need. I wanna encourage you, whatever it is you have, time, money, education, stuff, whatever you have, now that it doesn't define you, you've been crucified with Christ and he lives in and through you, use what you have for the glory of God. Use what you have for the kingdom. What you have isn't necessarily inherently bad. It's just not your identity. Use it now for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what Paul did. He said in Philippians 3.12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, to possess what Christ Jesus did in possessing me, taking me, holding me. He has you. That's your identity. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new